All right, so we have been in discussion on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we kind of, you know, went through that, went deep into the weeds on the two things together, and then we kind of settled it out a little bit last week. And we were talking in the first week about our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And last week, we looked at five things very specifically regarding the kingdom of God. Jesus taught the kingdom was received and not earned. Remember that, Mark 10. He taught the kingdom was for the humble, not for the proud or the self-righteous, Matthew 5. Jesus taught the kingdom was the priority. It was the solution for everything that gives life, Matthew 6. Jesus taught the kingdom triumphs over any adversary, even when it looks like the enemy has some limited success. We saw that in Matthew 13. And Jesus taught the kingdom that he proclaimed would have a small and humble beginning, but it would have a mature and glorious ending and proves that what God desires, what he wills to do in reconciling mankind to himself will be huge. The centrality of the kingdom of God in the preaching and teaching of Jesus was very evident. And we take away from the the first parable that a man comes upon, hang on just a second, I flip my notes over here. Never, never done that before. Anybody remember the time that I actually forgot my notes and I had to walk off the platform at one point in time? No, no, I probably shouldn't have brought that up then, Josh. (laughs) But Jesus' actions were all centered on the kingdom coming and the things on earth responding to and reflecting the will of God in the heavenlies. We noted that there's a certain amount of, of wrestling, though, that you have to do with this concept this understanding of the kingdom of God with, with Jesus' focus on these things. Because the vital nature of the message of the kingdom of God is that it, it translates into what kind of life is had. It, it translates into how life is lived. It, it translates a, a message that, that is proclaimed by the life. So this morning I want to hit two more of the parables, and I actually told Dina I'm going to cut this short this morning, and she just kept going. She didn't even listen. But I told you I was going to give you a little bit of time back from last week because I went a little bit long. But we're going to we're going to look at um, we're going to look at two of the parables today about the kingdom, and how it's necessary for those to impact our lives as kingdom citizens. They're found near the end of Matthew 13. Verse 44 is where we start. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that
that he had and bought it. I was going to ask the question, is there anything that you could ever find in your life that you believe you would sell everything you have in order to have that? And the men are saying, yes, that would be my wife. Yes. If you said anything else, man, I gave you a freebie right there and you did not take it. But you think about that concept of selling everything you have. And even if you sold everything you have, you would probably still have some things that you didn't. Right? But the proposition that we're being given here is that all is being sold. Now we're going to look at each one of these individually, but first I want us to see a couple of distinctions that matter in this. The first one is this, is the distinction in a, a treasure hidden in a field and a merchant seeking fine pearls and how it gives us a picture of two very different individuals coming in contact with the point of the parable, which is the kingdom of heaven. We take away from the first part of the verse in the first parable that, that the man comes upon something of great value completely by accident, it seems. He's, he's walking along one day and, and we have no indication that he's searching and yet, there it is. It's as if the treasure found him. We, we take away from the second parable that the man was searching diligently for something very specific, and in fact, multiple somethings of value. When he comes upon one thing that he sees, and because he is familiar, he knows that it has supreme value, this man is diligently searching, seeking out, and what he finds is more than he was searching for. It's as if his search was finally over. Now, I want to remind us of something here, and that is what the definition of a parable is. The word parable means to place beside or compare so it's, it's a comparing using word pictures, using things that bring about the, the ability to, to see very clearly based on normally things that are right around. And Jesus used them. He told a story that was placed beside a truth. Now, some people will take the parables and they'll find 47 different meanings for the parables. It's not the way a parable works. It's placed beside a very specific truth, and then that truth is understood, and it has maybe multiple applications to it, but it's, it's a truth that brings out a, a powerful reality. They weren't simply stories. They, they were stories with great purpose, and here it's the purpose of bringing out the truth regarding the kingdom, his kingdom. Since both of these involve a little work, let's, uh, let's dig into them just a bit. The first one, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
Now, I will tell you that at first glance, this parable is a little bit bothersome to me. It's a little bit bothersome to some because of the way it appears this man is going about using uh, things and, and doing his business, right? You, you see these things and you, you never want to associate anything unholy with that which is holy. You never want to associate anything bad with that which is good. And so sometimes it's, it's bothersome because it's not bothersome to us that the man is walking along in this field and all of a sudden he stumbles upon a treasure. Now, scholars will tell you that um, as they argue about what the treasure actually is or, or those things, um, there are some that believe it was a very specific item. There are others that believe it was something more like a mine shaft that maybe had a gold vein running through it or something like that. But the bothersome part is that he seems to hide it and then take advantage of the owner of the field. So is the point Jesus is making that the kingdom of heaven is about deceit and getting what you want? Or that once you find the kingdom of heaven, you're supposed to hide it from everyone else, right? Well, of course not. So what's going on? The point of this parable is not to address really something legal or even moral or even ethical. It's much like the parable that's in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, it says this, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So this is the coming of the Lord. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, did he just call the Lord a thief? He would have been on alert and would have not allowed the house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must then be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour in which you do not think he will. Jesus is not being called a thief in the sense of moral, unethical guy that steals all your stuff. So what's going on? And, and, and the more important question is, how would these people understand the context of these parables? What, what would they get out of them? So let's look back at the, the one that we're, we're looking at this morning about the, the land. The first thing we know about this land is that this land that Jesus was talking about, that he was in, had been ravaged by war, Right? Over and over and over, raiding parties would come in, wandering tribes of people would do different things in the land, they would take certain possessions for themselves, they would do certain things in the land. There were always robbers and thieves. You remember the story of the, the Good Samaritan, right? There were robbers and thieves constantly waiting to do things. So there was a protective nature of the people regarding their possessions, it, it was not uncommon for people to bury money or bury jewelry or other valuables in the earth. And, and we've seen many archaeological digs that have just found those things out in the middle of nowhere. When the historian Josephus wrote about this, he said, The gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured underground was done to withstand the fortunes of war. 
the rabbis of the time actually had a saying, and it was this, the only safe repository for money is the earth. So there's this protective nature that these people understood, and some of them may have understood, and maybe they even went back and checked their fields, right? They, they actually knew something was in the field that they had hidden, and they're wondering, well, did that guy steal, right? It, it could have very easily been that. So as, as life happened and, and people were forced out of places and, and some died and the land was sold to someone else, maybe someone that wasn't in the family or didn't know, there would have been these treasure troves buried all over the place. I once buried something in my yard in Mississippi where I grew up. And it was something that was valuable to me. It doesn't matter what it is. It was something that was valuable to me. And one time when we were back there, I remembered that I had buried that. And, and yet I knew that the people wouldn't go let me dig it up. Worse than that, I had forgotten where it was exactly. So I would have had to dig up their entire yard. But, but there were actually in this environment laws. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago that when something is going on that's of great value or, or in the context of the community, normally if something was wrong with it or something was happening, that was very important, they'd make a law concerning it. And there were actually laws that were written to guide those finding a treasure that didn't belong to them. Here's what one historian said about that law. According to Jewish law, if man found treasure in loose coins among the corn, it would certainly be his. If he bought the corn, if he found it on the ground or in the soil, it would equally be certain that it belonged to him if he could claim ownership of that soil. So Jesus' audience might not have looked at this particular parable exactly like I do and what bothers me about it. They, they likely recognized that the treasure was not hidden by the owner of the field or, or he would have retrieved that treasure for sure, right, before he sold the land. Anybody would do that. They, they might have even seen the, the man as, as somewhat virtuous because here he is stumbling along and, and whether he stumbles on a gold shaft or, or he stumbles on some treasure that's in a box somewhere, he could have simply taken it out of the field and not even bothered with the owner. He didn't have to go buy the land. He could have just taken the treasure. So they might have seen him a bit differently. They, they would have seen him though, well, well within his modern-day equivalent of the finder's keeper's rule, right? They would have, they would have seen him in that, in that vein and, and, and would have seen him as even wise to kind of, you know, make sure that it was hidden until he transacted the business, lest someone come and purchase the field before him and the treasure is lost forever. But all of these parts would, would not have made the people, I don't believe, Think about all the legalities. Now, our resident lawyer might, but all the people wouldn't be thinking about the, the legalities of all of this stuff and bothering themselves with all of how that might have worked or the transaction or any of those things. It would have focused their minds more on the value of the treasure. If this guy is willing to go through this much to do this one thing, then that must be something truly valuable. 
Because if, if he's going to do this to secure it, it, it has to be something great. Jesus gave them these details to emphasize the incredible value, the treasure that is the kingdom of heaven. And, and the other part of what is going on here is that these people, as we said earlier about wrestling with some of these things, these people would have been forced to, to face themselves and their finding of the kingdom of heaven. Their reception of the kingdom of heaven. After all, look what finding this treasure did to this man. So you're sitting back and you're listening to the parable as Jesus is speaking it. And you're going, huh. That's about the kingdom of heaven, huh? So what have I found? What have I found concerning that? What is my reception of that? Remember, Jesus had said earlier, it, it must be received. It was the source for great joy. Jesus said, from joy. From joy. Flowing, flowing from something taking place within, this man did what he did. From joy over it. Very specifically, the scripture says, and that joy motivates him to action. And the action wasn't just something you would consider normal action, right? Because the first thing that you would do in, in normal stuff is you, you weigh everything out. This, this man didn't weigh everything out. His action was extreme. He went and sold all that he had How determined was he to have this treasure? Selling everything could not have been easy. Selling everything had to take some time. Selling everything made it an all or nothing proposition. But the value of the treasure made every sacrifice he might have made worth it. Because he believed that in the end, the price he paid was nothing compared to what he would possess. This was the kingdom of heaven. And, and those who would receive it would do so for the joy it brings to possess its infinite worth this had to be going through the mind in some way shape or form of the apostle paul when he said this but whatever things were were gained to me those things i have counted as loss for the sake of christ more than that i count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing christ jesus my lord for whom i've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish garbage that i might gain christ so as you think about this parable who might this represent a, a person who is on the subway and they sit down and 
and right next to them is one of those little tracks. And they look at it because it's got this cartoony thing on the front and they just pick it up because they're bored. They got 20 minutes, right? A, a person who flips across the radio dial and, and hears a message from someone speaking and it, it, it talks about this Jesus or, or maybe they flip across the dials and they, and they find this, this song being sung and they, they like the tune and, and all of a sudden they're hearing words about this Jesus. How about a person doing an internet search and accidentally it comes up with something Christian or that which regards Christ? How many people are being pursued by Jesus and yet accidentally stumble on the greatest of all treasures. Now the second one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This parable is not about anything accidental. The, the first thing we notice about this person is that he is seeking, he is engaged in his pursuit of these pearls. It's his business, it's where his mind is, it's where his heart is, it's where he places all of his energies, it's where his life is being spent, pursuing pearls. The pursuit is specific. He's made it his life's mission to find these very specific objects and, and to find the best of them, the most rare, the most valuable, the fine ones. Now, I read something this week regarding kind of the history of pearls. And, you know, there's multiple references to pearls in Scripture, like the pearly gates. Um, do not cast your pearl before swine. You know, there's multiple references to pearls. And, and if you look back in history, there was a lot that was tied to opulence and wealth as it related to pearls, much like diamonds might be today for us. And, uh, and it was said of one of the, the leaders, Caligula, he was an evil, wicked guy, but he wanted to show how wealthy he was. And so he would take a pearl that was of great value and he would actually just dip it or, or dissolve it in a little bit of vinegar. Then he would pour it in his wine and he would drink it just to show how wealthy he was. Pearls had value. Today, maybe not so much since we can put them, you know, have you ever seen how they seed pearls into an oyster and then it grows? And I mean, that's okay. There's a multi-million dollar industry. So now you can buy a string of pearls for 150 bucks, right? I mean, it's, it's different, but, but this was not the same. This, this merchant, if, if somebody would have stopped him and, and they would have asked him, hey, hey, what are, what are you doing with your life now? Maybe maybe caught up with an old high school chum, you know, um, from the, the Jerusalem high school and, you know, they're, they're talking and stuff. And the, and the guy asking, he says, what are, you, what are you doing with your life right now? He would, he would be very specific, wouldn't he? he? He would tell them very plainly, he says, look, my, my life is about seeking pearls. And not just any pearls, 
but fine pearls. That's what I'm looking for. That's, that's what I'm doing with my life. I, I wonder, again, these parables were affecting real people in real time, right? So I wonder if, if these people that were listening to Jesus that day were, were that sure of their lives, that sure of why they were living and what they were living for. A little bit of that is brought into this story, I believe, very purposefully. So how far did this search take him? How many pearl workers did this guy meet? How many pearl sellers did he talk to? How many did he have to cull through? Right? How, how, many, how many pearls did he have to look at and hold and, 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 and do this with his fingers to, to check the purity of them? How, how many did he pass over? How many did he find to be inferior to his definition of fine? What was clear was that he knew what he was doing, he was looking for, and if anyone was going to find the best ones, he would, right? It was his mission in life. How many fine pearls did he have in his pouch? We don't know. How much had he paid for all the pearls that he had in his pouch at the time? We don't know. But what we do know is that at some point in his quest, he found not just a bunch of good pearls, not just a bunch of remarkable pearls, he found one. And to him, that one pearl eclipsed all others. It eclipsed all the fine pearls that he had in his inventory, all the ones he had in his pouch, the ones he had in his hand at the time that he found the one? We don't know how big it was. I mean, pearly gates, you know, maybe it was that one. Um, but we don't know. We don't know how big it was. We, we don't know where he found it. We don't even know what the asking price of the pearl was. But it didn't matter. Because when he found this pearl, there was no question in his mind as to whether or not he should buy it. No question. What we know is that this man surmised that the, the pearl was worth all that he had, including any other fine pearls that he had acquired. What's interesting to me is, is that he evidently thought it worth not only the, the pearls he had because he spent all that he had, but he also thought it worth all future pearls because he had purchased this one with everything he had and he had nothing left. It wasn't as if he was looking at this one pearl and he was going, man, this is the greatest one I've ever found. I hope I can find another one just like this in the future because I'll sell this one, right? That, that wasn't the consideration here. Now, the scripture doesn't directly say it here, but since the kingdom of heaven is tied together with all of these parables, there's 
there must have been an, an equal amount of joy that this merchant had as well as the first guy with the field in, in his selling of what he had. And for each thing that he offloaded, for each thing that he sold, he knew that he was one step closer to the one thing, the one thing that would satisfy him. One scholar said of the transactions, it had taken him a long time to get all these things that he had. And I have no doubt he had much pleasure in the accumulation. We do that, right? We buy something that we really like. We hold on to it. We really, really like that thing. Sometimes we'll put it up on a shelf and we'll look at it all the time. Sometimes we'll put it in a shadow box with other things that are very, the accumulation of things that we love and we, we enjoy and that bring satisfaction, we enjoy accumulating them. But now, the author says, he has great pleasure in selling. Buy my farm! He says to the one man, come buy it. The guy says, I don't know that I want to buy farms. He says to the other, it, it, it's nothing, it's, it's nothing. Nevertheless, let us come to terms. I, I need the money. I, I must have the money. And away went the furniture in the house. One article after the other. They all must go. Clear them all out. This was a rapid sale. He must have the money. They must go. Everything must go for this one pearl. You notice that neither one of these parables have a person in them that is trying to bargain over the price. Because all was the price. So who might this parable represent? A person searching for satisfaction, diligently pursuing all that seems to bring fulfillment? A, a person who is searching for meaning in life, diligently pursuing that which would satisfy? A, a person who is searching for truth, diligently pursuing anything that enlightens. How many are pursuing something else and run headlong into Jesus only to realize that he is the source of all pursuits and in him is found the greatest of all treasures. For the people hearing this, at least the ones who were listening, they heard a few important things that, that, that they would need to wrestle with related to this kingdom of heaven. The first is this. There, there's no formula for who may enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know what the call is, right? To repent. But there's no formula. People may come from very different contexts, very different places of life, very different understandings of spiritual things. Like the two in these parables, one seeking, one not, yet both 
illustrated a turn from their sin and a placing of faith in Jesus. They, they didn't have to jump through hoops or become something before they came to Christ. They just had to value the treasure. The second thing they would have wrestled with, I believe, the kingdom of heaven is not forced on the unwilling. In both parables, we see people who desire to acquire something that they view as immensely valuable. And, and they're willing to sacrifice everything else to have it. There's no coercion. There's no loss of will. Only desire on the part of the individual to have it at the cost of all. The third wrestling point for them, I think, would have been there is joy and satisfaction in receiving the kingdom of heaven. Both individuals here chose very clearly to have this treasure or the pearl at the cost of everything they possessed. There was no remorse. There was no regret. There was no displeasure. Only the deep sense of contentment that comes through making the ultimate good and right choice. But there was one thing, one other thing, that they had to wrestle with, and it's, it's the same thing that the rich young ruler had to wrestle with. The kingdom of heaven and, and citizenship there is not offered to those who are only partially willing to become its citizens. The kingdom of heaven has no dual citizenship. It's, it's all or nothing in its proposition. So as we talked about last week, if a person is unwilling to make the kingdom of God the priority and the solution for everything that life gives and that gives life, their citizenship application would be questioned. If a person was unwilling to do away with their pride and their self-righteousness and live humbly, their citizenship application would be opposed. So as these people were listening, as, as we are listening, there's a recognition that citizenship in the kingdom demands, as the song we sing, my soul, my life, my all. There, there's no other authority in my life greater than that of God's authority. This is something that these people would have to be wrestling with in their minds as related to the fact that they are going to either be citizens of the kingdom of heaven under the rule and reign and authority of God or not. There's no other truth in my life greater than that of God's word. There's no other cause in my life greater than that of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other thing that I look to for satisfaction in my life greater than His will. You know, if there's, there's anything that I've seen in my life living in the United States, 
It's that many, if not most, of the citizens of our country take for granted what they have in their citizenship and even what it means. And, and the value of what it means to live here and be a part of this country is often taken for granted. And if that's true of citizens of this country, I, I wonder if it could be true of citizens of his kingdom as well. Because I got to tell you that as I, I read these parables, with ears that can now hear and understand their truths, there is sometimes a sting. There's sometimes a sting. And I believe that's why they're left in there. These, these parables of the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are, are not just part of the history lesson that is the life and teaching of Jesus. They are there to give hope that both the seeking and the non-seeking alike can be captivated by the great value of the kingdom of heaven and of its king. But they're also there, I believe, to remind those who are citizens of what their citizenship means. I'm going to end with this. Right before these two parables are given by Jesus, he makes a very simple appeal. No pressure, no coercion. He simply says this in Matthew 13, 43, second part of the verse. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And we could unpack that, recognizing that there were things that Jesus was saying that weren't going to be heard by people and were going to be heard by others. But, but this is actually a partial quote from Daniel 12. And as Daniel is being inspired to write about the end of time, the full quote is this. Those who have insight or those who are wise, depending on what version you might be reading, those who have insight or those who are wise will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. As I read that and recognized that it was Jesus quoting Daniel talking about a time where he had come into the world. And remember he said the kingdom of heaven is here. Right? All of this is going on in that, and then it, 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 it's looking at the very end of the times. And there's an emphasis there. There's an emphasis there for the people who will shine forth as the sun. The emphasis of these parables on the life of the citizens of heaven is to shine the light of the righteousness of his kingdom, and especially in the times that are leading to the end. It's not by accident that those things are connected there. 
so here's what we have for this morning. If your light has become a little dim, let me put it another way. If you've taken your citizenship in the kingdom of God for granted, or, or you're trying maybe, maybe you believe you can have dual citizenship, right? The scriptures address that, almost like this line here. There were some that wanted to be in the world and at the same time in the things of God, and it's impossible. But if your lights become a little dim, or maybe you've taken your citizenship somewhat for granted, or, or maybe you're trying to have dual citizenship, you know, you're at the immigration office of heaven, and you're trying to convince them, no, I want to keep my, my citizenship of worldly things in the earth too. They're going to say, denied. But if you're trying to do that, can I encourage you? Can I point you back to the treasure that you first discovered? To that moment when you, you recognized who Jesus is. That moment when you were willing to jettison everything else and follow him. Can I point you back to the one pearl? The one you were willing to abandon all other fine, fine things for. Can I encourage you to let your light so shine that they might see your good works in and for and of the kingdom of God and glorify the Father who is in heaven. These parables are fun and they are awesome in their content. But we must wrestle with them because they are the standard what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Ross is going to lead us in one last song and then we're going to close out. But will you wrestle a little bit with it? Will you go back and maybe look at that one more time and, and ask yourself, when I stumbled on, if that was your experience, this treasure, am I the same in my willingness to, to sell everything for it today? If you were seeking and you found that pearl and you were willing, am I, am I willing to do that still today? Or have I regarded my citizenship as something a little bit less? Lord, help us in these next few moments and maybe even after that as you give us life on this planet to, to reflect to wrestle a little bit with our citizenship Ross